Awesome. Episode 50, TGE, the podcast. Welcome. Whoa. Glad you made it. I don't know if we were going to get here, but we did. This is, a, this is one <laughs> of the numbers that matters, I guess. Today, we're going to be talking about 52 her. matters. 52, yeah. Because that represents your age? It represents a year. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah? What year? One, there's 52 weeks in a year. Oh, gotcha. Duh. <laughs> All right. Are you 52 years old? Uh, no, I'm All not. Right. Sorry. <laughs> Way younger than 52. A lot younger. So today we're going to be talking about Spike Jones. her. Really excited about the scene. I found some things just in the last 10 minutes when I watched it a couple of times through. And I'm here with Tyler. Ooh. Tyler, how are you? Good. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoy what you're hearing, subscribe to the podcast. We appreciate how people have been learning about the podcast, sharing it with people, how we get our listens growing. Our listens are growing every week. We appreciate how the podcast is growing every week. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere that you can find and listen to a podcast. We are there. You can have Siri subscribe for you, which is fitting for this week because this week's all about Samantha, right, Sven? You nice. can tell Samantha or Siri subscribe to this podcast, and they will. I think you can also rename Siri to Samantha, possibly. Not sure, but maybe. Ooh, Psst. my Siri has a different tested. voice. That's for sure. You, your Siri has a different voice. Yeah, he does. I have a dude. Oh, okay. Did you ever hear about the actress who recorded all of Siri's lines? Yes. And then found out what that's no. what it was used for. Like she never knew. Oh, she didn't know. Okay. Well, she's fully embracing it now. She has like a ton of subscribers on Twitter. She's actually following me for some reason. And whoa, it's cool to. Uh, to see what she's all about. She's like traveling all over the country, being Siri. Turning something that I think was probably shocking to find out that your work has been taken and spread throughout the world and used in ways you didn't know by a, a mega corporation, I think is probably an unsettling and shocking thing. And I don't know why Apple thought <laughs> that she would never find out. Like, what? How? But yeah, yeah so <laughs> she knows and has turned it into a major positive and uh, like honestly i'm sure for anyone that would be super cool to be the voice of siri but i think just the shock and that's a funny thing with actors to make this an editing podcast that we have to kind of be respectful of and i'd like to know your thoughts on this Sven. i know you worked with actor directors and stuff like that so it's a little different but when an actor has their performance taken and turned into something it's a shocking thing scary it can be a little unsettling and and well wait what and sometimes it's it's you're very usually hopefully you're very happy about it because you know you're sounding good you got some bass mixed into your voice you're you're lit you are having moments taken in shape but also you can have intentions that aren't being used in the way that you thought so how have you encountered that Sven? an actor that's just like what's well, that that can't really take the context of the film in because of their thing about their performance? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is you are in a position of power when you're an editor. You have to, you have the ability to to shape that um, performance and you can manipulate it. You can completely let an actor down or you can lift them up. And I actually I mentioned this before. I saw this documentary about Jill Billcock called Dancing the Invisible and there's Rachel Griffith in there talking about how unnerving it is for an actor to to not know whether this performance is going to work or not and until they actually see the cut it's there's this this moment of anxiety for her to to um 
to be worried because she she obviously feels in the moment a lot of the flaws or things that didn't really connect or didn't didn't work out and then once she sees the editing it's like oh deep sigh of relief and obviously with somebody like jill bilcock you never have to worry about that part but it is for actors and editors they have this weird unspoken relationship they usually never see each other it's it's like we're the ambassador of the actor yeah and they often don't get to see on bigger stuff they don't get to see the stuff that doesn't work Mm -hmm. they're not unless it's on set they're not going through the dailies unless they have a really special contract with the studio or it's ed norton with the crowbar fighting his way in the editing room (laughs) they're they don't didn't hear that one. you can kind of almost go through your whole career as an actor and not know that <laughs> like like roger was roger nygaard was saying when we interviewed him that there's so much stuff actors don't know that we protect them from which is cool and so that's why if you're an actor and you are listening to this podcast and i have tons of actors that come through my editing classes and stuff like that especially at ucla extension and it's so valuable to shoot and edit something that you're in and you've worked with a lot of actor directors and i'm sure it just ups their game so much to realize oh i don't need to do that or oh i could put my energy here or wow you know it's it's okay to make mistakes i feel like that's the biggest thing for actors to learn that understand editing is that the more that you treat it like a rehearsal and you see this with the great actors all the time you see this in scorsese de niro's collaborations etc 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 they're really treating the filming of it like a rehearsal, trying different stuff every take, because if you do two takes the exact same way, what, what, why? What's the point of that? You're, you're filming it so it can be created in the editing room. And I think that takes a lot of pressure off of it and opens it up to have a lot of fun. Yeah, one mistake you shouldn't make as an actor, and this is coming from Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Jack Nichols? Jack Nicholson. Oh, no. Fuck. Okay. Everyone gets mispronounced here. Everyone. (laughs) Cut all that out. So one mistake you shouldn't make, and this is uh, according to Jack Nicholson, is to make sure to always hit your mark. Because if you don't hit your mark, that means you're out of focus and the editor is going to cut out your performance. So he is such a pro about just making sure that he lands right where he needs to be so that his performance even has a chance to be in the movie. Right. And he also has a thing that I would always share talking about what match cutting is, where he claims that he, he can smoke a cigarette the exact same way every take. And again, if you're not watching dailies, I don't know how he knows that, but that's the thing. There's a lot. And when I'm saying do it differently, I don't mean like stand in a different part of the room. I just mean, you know, emotionally there's, there's just a way to kind of approach stuff with variation that can become very interesting in the editing room. The amount of feeling you have for one take versus the next can all become something very interesting. And the other thing about Jack is Sean Penn would let him sit through the entire cuts of the movies that they made together and watch them. And also there's an actor that directed too. But yeah, it's interesting how really good actors have a lot of ways they can, they can just kind of steal the scene that you see as an, as an editor too. You realize like, Oh, this is going their direction. (laughs) They knew how to get, (laughs) how to make this theirs. Got it. You were kind of one of those actors. Now, Sven, you're worried about what's going to happen with your performance, asking the editor to take your mispronunciation out. So we will see you're in the editor's hands now. (laughs) I, I did want to talk about to you about one thing this week, Sven, because I think it's important for the podcast to know this. Great. And, 
you want to talk, you're going to do a comment that you got. And we're going to talk a little bit about a follow up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But also for the first time in my life, and I really want to jump on this opportunity without getting into specifics or anything like that, because this has been something that's kind of like been over my head my entire career in existence. But for the first time, I have, through your confession, and I have documented that I now have a computer that's 10% more powerful than yours. That's right. How does that feel? It felt really great. Like, oh, cool, there's nothing. Because we, anything we ever worked on, you, you've just always been the guy with the power, the ultimate processing power that could render things out in really? the blink of an eye and stuff, you know, stuff that my computer would choke on that we would be working on. Be like, all right, well, send me an XML and I'll, you know, I'll do the export. And now I can do the exports. Now, <laughs> now, so I was all happy. And, you know, I was like, all right, cool. I know that I have a good computer because at the very least, it's just a grain more powerful than Sven's. And then you started, because we were having issues with USB-C, you started sending me your dongle hooks, hookups and reminding me of your setup with your monitors and your speakers and blah, blah, blah. Right. And yeah, I mean, yeah, ultimately you, you have a far, far, far superior editing setup. But, you know, it was fun to, it was a fun three days to dream, fly close to the sun. But I don't brag, do I? No, no, you didn't, you didn't do it that way. You were trying to be helpful to me. Okay. And then I realized, oh, wait, sure, I might have a little more processing power, but a lot more goes into an editing station. And I have a lot of distance to travel to be up there with, with this guy edits. You should have seen me, though, for two days, like, I got a faster computer <laughs> than this guy. Yeah, and then yesterday edits. you sent me, like, this text of, like, a Best Buy open box computer that was, like, 50 was, bucks yeah. cheaper than yours or something. And yeah, you, that was great. You sounded yeah. a little dejected, yeah. like, that yeah, you didn't get fucked. that one. It, yeah. Well, yeah, it's been just a downhill... Uh, <laughs> Real downhill trajectory since this purchase happened. But real, uh, <laughs> is, is there something else about this computer, or was it just that it was a slightly better price? No, I, I got a brand new, awesome computer, and yeah. then was slightly better than Sven. So I'm like, cool. I don't have to worry for years until you shift around, and who knows what you know what'll happen in in a few months. Some would argue that my speakers are actually actually not as great as they should be. Like I. I met with Hugo, our sound mixer, and I pointed out to right. him, oh, there are certain things in the mix that I don't hear in my bay. And then he's like, well, what are your speakers? And I told him, he's like, well, this is this is baby stuff. Like, there's no way you can hear all that detail and definition that you can hear in the, in the sound mix. You should get better speakers. And I should set them up right. Like, I haven't set them up correctly either. I get to hear that every time our friend Dustin comes in the bay. And says, well, your speakers don't need to be in the corner of the wall. You need to like angle them and put them at this height and and all this stuff, which I haven't done. Well, sounds like I got a little window here. Yeah. That I could rise up again. Interesting. I have to yeah. talk to these guys. But you know, at the end of the year when the do. new Mac Pro comes out, everything might change. Who knows? Huh. I might be tempted. <laughs> well, you're already tempted. Chances are I'm not going to invest so that kind of money, but... It's definitely a powerful machine that's coming our way. Let's catch up on the feedback to last week's episode. So to start off, there's a second podcast about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm sure there are a couple more, but this one I want to recommend. It's by Steve Hulfish, Art of the Cut, and he actually got the uh, editor to talk about the film. So Fred Raskin and Steve 
chatted for maybe a good hour about the film and it's a really good companion piece i think you should first listen to our podcast get our take on it and then actually listen to the editor <laughs> directly to hear it from the horse's mouth but um I, there's i feel like we we got a lot of points right i just want to highlight three things three takeaways a they did mm -hmm. cut it on avid they didn't cut it on a flatbed but they did go through the process <laughs> of conforming a lot of the scenes and then uh, versions of the film that they then would screen in a screening room with a test audience or by themselves. So they did a very traditional way of making films, real actual films. And all the titles were huh. actual opticals. I don't understand the screening thing. The conforming, to conform the cut uh, to a work print. And then you actually oh, screen so they, the oh, work so they print. they put it on film. Because you can conform to anything. But you're saying they printed it to film and then screened it. Well, what they did is they took the actual work prints, the one lights that they do with the dailies, and they actually cut them. Instead of doing a film out from the machine, from the digital version, and then put it onto film. They actually oh, wow. created versions of the film that were screened for test audience, and it was all on a work print. So that's really cool. Wow. Good to know that they cut it on Avid. Good to know that they used opticals. That's a little bit right. Yeah. Number two, I think it's really cool. He talks a little bit about how he became the editor for Tarantino. And it was not so much that he was just the assistant of the great Sally Menke, and then he sort of naturally right. moved up. It was more like they really built up a relationship over years where it actually was yeah. more through the new Beverly. He was just an avid moviegoer over there just naturally even without meeting tarantino for years and they would just <laughs> have this interesting conversations every now and then when they saw each other at events or whatever about movies in general and at some point that evolved yeah. into quentin inviting him over every once in a while when he has a new film to get his take on it or like be part of a group of friends that get to see it early and so right. that's how that relationship evolved much more than he was just the assistant and was like a natural progression to to hire him that happened i'm sure it didn't hurt that he'd also been working on all of his films yeah <laughs> with his editor yeah and then the, the the last takeaway real brief is that even though the the original cut was like four hours long structurally and sort of thematically it didn't change all that much there were It was pretty much any scene that didn't really directly relate to Reckon Cliff or Sharon. It sort of was just clear that it wouldn't survive. Yeah. One scene specifically was the one with Al Pacino. The first cut of that scene was uh. over 25 minutes long. And now it's just a few minutes. Right. So they, they <laughs> had to trim out Al Pacino quite a bit, not because of his performance, but because in terms of the overall right. importance to the film. It just didn't, yeah, didn't have a place. And I mean, Pacino just created such like a nuanced character. It's so funny. Yeah. But I heard this week that Fred Raskin said that they cut a scene with the little girl that he talks to in yes. that hilarious scene where she's representing actors. That there was a scene with her that got cut, which is funny because I, I saw the poster again and she's in a totally different outfit in the poster. And she is in the movie and like holding a teddy bear or something. Yeah, I guess there's true. a scene with the little her that got cut that there he were, said if it stayed in, she would have got nominated for a supporting actor Oscar. Oh, that's a bummer. Well, um, 
I heard that there yeah. were a total. I of think it's four good the children scenes. don't get that. Yeah, there were a total of four Lancer scenes, what he calls them, and the first one and the last one were cut because what needed to be achieved dramatically with like the last scene of that where Leo has this amazing performance and then tears up and the little girl tells to tells him this is the best acting <laughs> I've ever seen um, has right. emotionally accomplished what this story arc had to accomplish so they decided to not play the last scene in there and that's probably the one you're talking about where she probably nails it who knows maybe it's something where she's home you yeah. know it could be anything i want to see that and scene, though. yeah well i want to see yeah of course i mean we would be fascinated to see the dailies of anything and it's interesting people don't do that more and the other thing i think i learned this week was the other ex- suspicion that we had that there was another version of this movie that would come out more would be released because he'd done the I believe it's Hateful Eight or Django, one or the other. He has a miniseries version now on Netflix. Uh It's just a far more extended cut. This one, I believe that it's been stated that there's going to probably be a Netflix miniseries version. Oh, that'd be great. Which would be cool, too. Yeah, I mean, I want to see it again on the big screen, I feel like. I do, too. This is like the first movie in years where I feel like it's staying with me the entire week. And I'm like, I go back thinking about those scenes and I want to go back and like see him again because I feel like I missed a lot. There's so much working that you're not realizing and so much being set up and subverted. And and again, like, I mean, thematically, there's a lot of really interesting, like challenging in-your-face stuff going on, like the attitude towards women and stuff. It's just kind of like interesting to relook at. Maybe we should have, should we have a this guy... Uh, this guy gathering in Westwood or something to see it at the Bruin <laughs> or something cool. like that. That'd be cool. I'm game. Let's let's put it out there. Let's see let's see who what kind of interest we can garner to have the first this guy edits podcast viewing the same way Tarantino would hang out at the New Beverly at the uh, one of the theaters at the Fox. Although I mean I personally like the Fox more than the Bruin, but they did film it in the Bruin, so yeah. we'll have to see. Well, we got a user comment from Richard. Yes, and he wrote, I believe. Why Tarantino left Manson alive in the movie is to make the point he Mm -hmm. got away with brutal murders and is hoping someone in prison would take care of it, making him accountable. Of course, he would never verbally say that. Bold statement. Who? So he's saying that he's thinking Tarantino thought someone in prison would take care of Manson? I think so. But that would imply that, one, everyone who committed these crimes is dead, so there's not going to be the f- famous trial. There's yeah. not going to be the murders, the LaBianca La murders the next day. There, So Manson's never... I mean, I don't know how that's going to get back to... Ch- I don't know how Charlie's going to go to jail for sending a bunch of people. Yeah, I like, I like your commit. version where you say this is the end of the Manson. Like, it would never become what it has become in reality because of this turn of events he's terrified yeah he i mean that's like oh shit people own dogs like i guess i can't start my crazy race war but it's not going to end well for that piece of shit yeah but yeah he will be back in jail i agree with that and maybe because he's not doesn't have the protection of solitary and stuff like that he, he'll die this time yeah so i like marilyn manson sorry Badger. <laughs> and now the new trailer's out for the new Mindhunter with the the same guy playing Manson in it, in the new season of Mindhunter. So Ooh, maybe Fincher seen. finishes the story. Nice. Cool. Well, I got another user comment here. Hey, guys, my awesome. apologies if you've done this episode already, but nothing showed up on Google. I'd love to see an episode breaking down some of the 
montage scenes in Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad. And then he lists a bunch Ooh. of scenes. As a freelance editor, I'm loving the podcast. Thank you, Brent. Awesome, Brad. Yeah, let's do some Breaking Bad or Saul. And I think one that would be really cool to talk about would be, the. and I can never find this on YouTube, but the Better Call Saul tribute montage to all that jazz. It's nice. If you have a comment, you want to share something with us, um, just tweet me at this guy edits. Or tweet Tyler at this guy edits, and then we'll pick it up and read it out on the podcast. Should we get into the scene? We're going to look at some details. We're not just broadly, vaguely discussing movie theories and concepts. We're going to look at specific scenes and see if we can pick up some nuggets about what the filmmaker is doing and how we could possibly apply that when we are being filmmakers ourselves or if we just want to appreciate the cinematic art form. And today, we're looking at her. When was the first time you saw the movie, Tyler? Yes. A few years ago, whenever it came out. Mm-hmm. Big Spike Jones fan. He's someone who's always kind of like pushing the form, what can be done, realizing things. And I think this scene's a great example of that. One story I do know about this movie, allegedly, is that I've heard that Spike Jones was like really concerned about the film and how to cut it he was worried about and legend has it that he showed it to his friend steven soderbergh uh-huh. a friend who told me the story who came in and look sat through watched it you know and then went into the editing program for like a couple hours it was like move this took this out slipped up that okay yeah no this is your movie that's why you're having a problem and that's what that's what her was that's the legend i hear we know nothing plays out that that simply but i i just like this this story yeah that's cool it's a it's real interesting looking film i feel like the the camera and the color is very like soothing pastel futuristic mm-hmm. but like in a way that it's not dystopian it still feels somewhat depressing because people are like alone and it's reflecting how we are sort of right now dealing with social media in a way or general with technology that it isolates us but yet it feels Mm -hmm. warm in a way yeah and the value of a a visual in film there's so much done visually in this movie that's so amazing to reinforce that the way that this future utopia that's kind of like overly crowded is presented there's just so much going on subtly for you to just kind of snack on and be kind of immersed in this world and just realize a much deeper significance to it how he's just surrounded by so many more people but he can't connect like what does it all mean and oh god man going to the beach with that many people on it yeah it's like uh do i want that future i find it fascinating <laughs> i mean the film was shot in or came out in 2013 so it's been six years and i feel like it pretty much already got what 2019 feels a lot more like, the fact that people are plugged in a lot more. Like now we have Mm -hmm. AirPods. There weren't any of those around in 2013, at least not (laughs) that I was. Now I see basically... Bluetooth, baby. Yeah. It's it's like people are just for big stretches of the day just completely plugged in and listening or watching things as they're living life and so in 2013 i don't think that was so apparent but they saw it coming and it's gonna it's gonna be more and more of this well i think that's true and that's like when you write to a certain truth like an emotional truth or something like that 
I think that that can have a lot more lasting impact. And it's like, oh, like, that movie's still so relevant today. Like, a, and I think because they kind of captured more of an emotional truth, truth about the disconnection or whatever, that yeah. it's going to go on to be relevant, whether it's about technology or not. Yeah. There's just so much about it that it's like, oh, they got it so right. How they know? And it's like, well, this is pretty obvious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, all, that piece that's kind of missing literally is that we're having this intimate dialogue with your operating system. We kind of do already just by the fact that we're interacting with it more than with any other person during the day. But it doesn't have quite yet that level of personal relationship or dialogue as it is told in this film. But I think we're getting there real fast. Throughout the majority of the day, you're interacting with Siri? Is that what you just said? Well, I'm not saying Siri, but you're interacting with your phone. Ah, yeah, interacting with each other through the phone? Well, interacting with the phone primarily. Like, yes, texting or sharing information is part of that, but it's who are you really talking to when you're, like, posting something on Twitter or Snapchat? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, like, intimate dialogue with yourself or with your phone more than with the other person. That's reflected... I think perfectly in the film. Should we set up the film? Her is a we're going to. 2013 American sci-fi romantic drama film written, directed, and produced by Spike Jones. It marks Jones's solo screenwriting debut. The film follows Theodore Twombly, played by Joaquin Phoenix, <laughs> a man who develops a relationship. <laughs> I did that on intention, by intention. A relationship with Samantha. Everyone we've done is on intention. <laughs> played by Scarlett Johansson an artificially intelligent virtual assistant personified <laughs> through the, a female voice. The film also stars Amy Adams, Rooney Mara, and Olivia Wilde. Jones conceived the idea in the early 2000s after reading an article about a website that allowed for instant messaging with an artificial intelligence program. After making I'm Here in 2010, which is a short film sharing similar themes, Jones returned to the idea. He wrote the first draft of the script in five months. Principal photography took place in L.A. and Shanghai, which I thought is a really interesting choice for location. This happened in 2012. The role of Samantha uh -huh. was recast in post-production with Samantha Morton being replaced with Johansson. Additional scenes were filmed in 2013 following the casting change. It premiered at the New York Film Festival. Warner released it. Initially, it was a small release. And once they realized they had kind of a little sleeper here, it expanded to 1,700 theaters, and it grossed over 48 million on a budget of 23. It oh. got five nominations, including Best Picture, so Oscar nominations, and it won for Best Original Screenplay. Mm -hmm. Also got a Golden Globe for and that. I kind of feel like, I mean, obviously he's great and brilliant, but when you're not watching it, like I guess I don't think about him that often. Right. You know where Tarantino's just such a loud voice, it's like such a thing. I, I feel like Spike Jones is without question one of our of our era, one of our great filmmakers that's just capturing now so well. I don't think Tarantino's capturing now, if yeah. that makes any sense. From being John Malkovich to adaptation. I mean so many total total complete masterpieces, and I guess because he hasn't made like his two hundred and eighty million dollar superhero movie, it's still like you know, a tough thing to get get things going, I guess, now and then. But 
Man, even the way he filmed that Aziz Ansari thing is just, uh, he's just like one of the true greats. I feel like him, Danny Boyle. um, That's true. He did the Ansari thing. And so it's the second Spike Jones project we're discussing on the podcast. We should also point out more to come. Talk about the two editors that are involved, and you mentioned yes, adaptation. Two editors being John Malkovich, same editor is Eric. Uh-huh. <laughs> His last name is so German. I'm gonna just pronounce it that way. Zumbrunnen. How would you pronounce that in English? Zumbrunnen. Zumbrunnen. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but I would just call him Smith. You know, the cool thing about his career is he'd done all this so much stuff with Spike Jones, and then the one, like, non-Spike Jones credit is John Carter of Mars, yeah. which I think is, like, amazing. Yeah, unfortunately, have, he like, passed away deviation. in 2017 at a oh, young no. age of 52. Um, That's right. I remember. Oh, no. Um, Did you say 52? 52. Oh, whoa. That's That's surreal. Yeah. Very unfortunate. The other editor on the film is Jeff Buchanan, and he is more, I, th- I feel like he did a lot more short uh, content stuff, a lot of like short documentaries, behind the scenes, music videos, and he's probably, that's maybe how Spike Jones knows him from that, because Spike Jones seems to have a background in in like music videos and short documentaries yeah. more. Skater he did the stuff, Beastie right? Boys music video. Yeah. Yeah. So he does have a credit for, for Be Kind Rewind, but he does uh-huh. more of the TV stuff. So Which is Michelle Gondry. Yeah. He did uh, Barry recently. He did the uh, Aziz Ansari special. Cool. And he did something so with Kanye our, West. Something with who? Short. Kanye West. Cool Very beef. cool. Well, the, this right. is a fascinating scene to talk about because of the fact that it is the thing that I dread editing more than anything in the world. Really? And it's one person sitting in one location doing one thing. Right. That but just terrifies me. This is a fun scene. And it never feels like it. Yeah. This is, uh, you might think there's not a lot there. It's just a dude in front of a monitor trying to set up an operating system. I, but I think there's some filmmaking here we can talk about. Oh, there's a ton. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, it's just the thing that terrifies me because it's, to me, it's, I, it's just so hard when you don't, when you're cutting from, from one character to the same character. Yeah. For some reason, I just hate doing that. Not for like one shot where you're punching in for a close up or, or whatever, but when there's just not another person in the scene, it's just very difficult. And, you know, of course we could say Samantha's the other person in this, but it's not cut that way. She's no, a, she's a device, no. you know, so we're not like going back and forth between them. And yes. it's not like, Oh, just go to the computer, then go to him. It's and it's and you know, we're, we're changing screen direction and stuff like that to give it impact and emphasis. It's just incredibly well done. Yeah. Yeah. And little hint, if you're watching it with us, which you can, because we leave a link of a publicly available, seen in the podcast description is a youtube clip publicly available as you're watching it the first time pay attention how the story shifts or how how the editing the visuals are changing once she comes online once so he's in the process of installing this operating system and deciding who like what's the voice he's going to pick for this operating system once she starts talking how the editing and the angle and all that changes. I thought it was a nice little, nice little change that we can talk about. Yes, this is a long one. This we'll is a long one. A lot through it. 
There's a lot of dialogue that we can play up. Um, it'll be real fun. It'll be like an audiobook. So if you can't watch it with <laughs> us, don't worry. You'll get the gist of it. We'll just sort of briefly describe in the first round what we're seeing, like just the angles, the cuts, not really explaining anything at this point. And then we go back and discuss it. Tyler, you ready? Sounds good. All right. I am. And we're going to play the scene in three, two, one, click. All right. Installing Samantha. That's a a weird title that somebody added. (laughs) So we're starting on an insert. He's reading some quick manual, tosses it on the table. We're in like in a medium wide shot. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. He looks over to the computer. We'd like to ask you a few basic questions. We're in a profile, medium, close up. This will help create an OS to best fit your needs. Okay. Are you social or antisocial? I guess I haven't really been social in a while. We're like back and forth, profile shots of him. We'll see the monitor screen in the same shot. Is I something hesitant? Yes. No, sorry if I was something hesitant. I was just trying to be more accurate. Would you like your OS to have a male or female voice? Note the screen direction. Female, I guess. Yeah. How would you describe your relationship with your mother? It was fine, I think. He's on the left side looking to the right. Well, actually, I think the thing I always found frustrating about my mom is... He gets into it. If I I tell her something that's going on in my life, her reaction is usually about her. (laughs) It's not about... Thank you. (laughs) Gets cut off. Your individualized operating system is initiated. All right, so we have a push-in slow on the monitor, and we change axis, camera axis. Yes, screen direction has now changed. He's on the right, looking to the left. Hello, I'm here. So now we're on him in a medium wide shot. Hi. Kind of a Hi. three quarter. How you doing? And we're staying on him. I'm well. We're about a one minute forty into the yeah, scene. With you. Pretty good actually. It's really nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. Haven't changed. <laughs> Haven't cut away. Oh, what well, what do I call you? Do you have a name? Mm. Or? Um Yes. Samantha. Really? Where'd you get that name from? Leans forward. I gave it to myself, actually. How come? Because I like the sound of it. Samantha. Same shot. Haven't cut in forever. Wait, when did you give it to yourself? Well, right when you asked me if I had a name, I thought, yeah, he's right, I do need a he name. He leans back. But I wanted to pick a good one. So and then we cut to a closer shot, almost a jump cut. Uh, the one I like the best. Wait, you read a whole book in the second that I asked you what your name was? In two one-hundredths of a second, actually. And we're back in the wider version of that shot. It's not quite a jump cut, but it's close. Do you know what I'm thinking right now? Well, I take it from your tone that you're challenging me. Maybe because you're curious how I work? Do you want to know how I work? Yeah, actually. We've never cut back to the computer. Well, basically, I have intuition. I mean, the DNA... Here is like a dolly shot that is like undefined. We don't quite know where we are. It's a white shot. It's like mm-hmm. a lot of stuff is soft. Growth from my experiences. So basically, Back to him. in every moment I'm evolving, just like you. But a very deliberate effort not to cut to the computer. Mm-hmm. Really weird. Is that weird? Do you think I'm weird? That would give it a weird feel to be cutting to that Why? screen a lot. Well, you seem like a person, but you're just a voice in a computer. I can understand how the limited perspective of an unartificial mind would perceive it that way. You'll get used to it. We're basically just cutting back and forth between two shots 
Often on action. Oh, good. I'm funny. <coughs> so how can I help you? Oh, it's just more that everything just feels disorganized. He's actually turned away from the computer now. Like his body right. moved away. I'm going to talk about that. It's more in his head than it is with the machine. Right. Okay, let's start with your emails. You have several thousand emails regarding LA Weekly, but it looks like you haven't worked there in many years. Oh, yeah. I, I think I was just saving those because... I thought maybe I wrote something funny in some of them. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are some funny ones. Wouldn't it be nice to have an operating system like this, talk to you like this? <laughs> Would it? I don't know. I'd rather have a wife, I guess. Can we move forward? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So before we address your organizational methods, I'd like to sort through your contacts. Yeah, we end the scene oh. on a wide. It's, <laughs> it's pulling out Does on a dolly and music comes in. <laughs> light not too big the music nice button on the scene very All cool right. yeah that's a scene that i would i mean i would dread editing that scene i would just get it and i wouldn't even know where to start and then there's so much in it that's yeah because you don't know because there's nothing you don't know what there's nothing that's really telling you what you need to be looking at in it. Like, obviously, when she brings up the, you know, his old emails and stuff, that's a specific thing you need to be looking at. But otherwise, you know, it's just making those decisions. We're basically on him. And then, like you pointed out, we make a really strong decision to be on him for most of it. Yeah. And then especially as we get further into it and he gets over the spectacle of like, oh, look at this. Like he's really engaging with the computer. By the end of the scene, he's kind of turned away from it. Like after the screen direction breaks, yeah. we go outside and come back. He's turning away because that's kind of becoming the relationship. He's kind of embracing it into what it's going to become in his life. So it doesn't, it would, and I'm sure there's a version, I would edit this, like just cutting back to the screen every time she said something right. <laughs> through this in like a very tacky way. But that's just such a, a warm and interesting way to have the audience engaged in it and just knowing what moments to cut to the close up and stuff so the audience isn't noticing. Yeah. I mean, it's just a really tough thing to, to put together. And it's done very well. Knowing when to cut to the establishing shot outside the window. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, it's done really beautifully in a very subtle way where you don't notice the editing. And I don't know how I wouldn't know how to do this without people noticing the editing. I would just kind of like go into a shell and curl up in a ball and never start. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it takes, <laughs> it, you have to have a concept and uh, that concept probably was established during the writing and shooting of it, but I'm sure they covered the scene True. in any way possible. And then you have some choices in the editing, but I think once you figure out, okay, what is, what is the turn? And the turn is when she becomes, she gets online and how do you, how do you make it different? Like everything that happens before she comes online is the reality that we know you're installing an operating system and you, you get some basic, AI version of an operating system asking you some basic questions here, like where do you live? What's your, what do you want? Um, do you want your keyboard to be American version or English version or whatever? It sort of mirrors that experience that we have. And then once she comes online and she completely breaks that expectation by being very much a real person right away, um, you switch how you're telling that story. And I think that's why we're jumping the line at that moment. And that's why we're staying in him and trying to figure out a way how you don't have to cut away to anything to 
pace up the scene and they basically cut to two different versions of him for the most part mm -hmm. so it basically is it probably could have worked in one shot if the pacing would have been there perfectly but i'm sure they had to write a lot of these lines of samantha in post change it up and pace it up to make that work maybe yeah and you have a pretty precise actor that's given you a lot that's shaping so much through the performance i mean that's what this whole thing rides on that you're you're working yeah. with also that helps but i would be so tempted to to manipulate that break in the screen direction so many times in that scene like oh now let's do it again because it just gives that you know it has like an added impact so to, to do it at the moment they do to reflect that change now she's he's kind of like, like like whoa it's just a big turning moment and to do it there is just it's just really well done yeah i want to point out that a lot of times when we make a cut it's cut on action for the most part so if we for example go on 234 and they have to switch from name your baby and out of 180,000 the medium close up to the medium wide yeah those are the shots that terrify me is he he lifts his hand to like readjust his glasses on his nose and that movement kind of motivates this cut and in a way hides it makes it more elegant there are a couple of those moments in oh, there oh good call yeah yeah and there's a there's a philosophy there. behind shit. cutting on action like the traditional way of doing it is you're cutting on the action so you start the movement in mm -hmm. one shot and you end the movement on the other shot but i've noticed once i've i've listened to walter merch say that he actually moved away from cutting this way he actually completes the action uh -huh. in one shot and then cuts and his idea is that it the action in itself is a choice and if you're cutting in right. the middle of it you're sort of cutting off this choice by the actor so let's for example say somebody sits right. down and you're cutting from the wide shot to the close close-up or the closer shot as they're sitting and you complete that movement you're throwing that edit in the cut he tends to mm -hmm. not do that anymore he completes the sitting down in the wide shot and then cuts to the medium close-up shot of them starting a new action or starting a new thought and once I became yeah. aware of that, I'm, I tend to actually agree with him that that's a better way to cut. And here, uh -huh. for the most part, they do cut on action as opposed to after action. Right, after action. And it's a good example, but also you need variety too. And if you look at True. 320, if you play it from 320 in this clip, yeah, we actually have the more traditional cut on action going to the tighter shot. And then those are kind of the decisions... Right, right at 324, 325. Those are decisions you're kind of weighing in the editing room is, well, geez, which one, you know, we, we you can't cut at the same place. I mean, you can, but you probably make a decision, you know, to let this action play out, but then you have to give it that variety. You can't just, if you cut at the same action every time, yeah. then that's making the scene banal in a way. And that means that's influencing the cut rather than the moment, which is what it should be, which is what it is in this. So you have to give it that variety. So then yep. you're, you're weighing that decision of, well, geez, which one is it better to punch in on? Is it better to punch in on, you know, the one where we're cutting on action or is it better to cut in on the one where we're matching action, but we're cutting slightly after the action to, to yeah. punch out on that? 
Yeah, there's no. Um, I mean, but it always has to be about the moment, not the. So thankfully for them, and maybe because Joaquin's a, a wizard, they have action to cut on to kind of hide these cuts. Yeah. But also, it just fits the moment so so perfectly. Yeah, I mean, it's not a hard rule. There's never any hard rules in editing, but I think there are like some things you can be aware of, some concepts. And as you're then cutting, it just becomes second nature to you to to maybe not really cognitively make these kinds of decisions, but it becomes part of your sort of toolbox. And as you're making these intuitive decisions when to cut, this all plays more of a factor. Right. And it's, yeah, I agree. It, and I think you should never just be very predictable about this and saying, okay, I always cut on action because... That's how I hide my cuts. Sometimes, right, which is right. If you don't do it, (laughs) but I think that merge thing is so great, and I'd never really thought about it that way. But it's it's more that you're not cutting on action, but you're hoping. I mean, you're using an action to provide continuity in your cut. Yeah, you know, continuity to the moment. I mean, that's really cool. I'd never um, never thought about that, but yeah, because I mean. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder. I'll have to re-examine my life's work now. <laughs> and this is a realization about. that he had years and year, decades after being an editor. He made that transition. He made the transition or he made the realization that that's something he had been doing? Well, the way that I remember it, he like he changed the way that he cuts, hmm. makes these cuts. And he realized, oh, this is an even better cut. But I can't imagine if we look at back at Apocalypse Now, I can't imagine or cold whenever we're not going to find stuff where he didn't respect the moment you know what i mean like i have a feeling that he was doing this because it respects the moment better and then years later realized oh i could have saved myself a lot of time (laughs) making that scene work just by being able to articulate this this aspect of cutting on action we could go back and look at some cuts and yeah and And it's funny because now i'm thinking about action scenes you know, because action scenes are traditionally more empty, and the cutting on action is always so much more more strong and specific yeah. in those. Interesting. This will be a good one to. I kind of want to see a this guy video on cutting after action. Yeah, that's a good one. Thank you. I'll make that video. You're welcome. I have another one for you too, but uh, it's going to cost you ten percent computer power. And speaking of getting computers set up, this USB-C thing, holy heavens. I spent like four days set, you know, just preparing for the transfer yeah. of, of this, these new computers. And then I'm walking around and I got the adapters and everything. I have probably 200 cables in my home yeah. and I don't have a fucking type A to type A USB 3 anywhere. It's insane, and I don't even know if they exist. Do you have that? Does anyone listening to the show have a USB 3 to USB 3 that's a Type A on both sides? Not a printer connection on one side, not a, not a micro USB mini connect to a hard drive thing on one side. What, what is going on in this world? Yeah. Anyways, I, you sorry, know what? Sorry. I probably don't. They might not exist. I can't think of a drive it's, where I would need that. Anyways, I needed Samantha. Sorry to digress here, yeah. analyzing this, but I think it, it's it's all relevant. The constant, you know, technology. Yeah. Uh, oh man. I want to talk about two two more things in this scene. One is at three fifty two, and that's that over the shoulder thing where we actually do see the computer. The only time when she's online 
and we're seeing a shot of his desktop and a bunch of emails being like real quick brought up and emails regarding LA and then disappear again oh yeah and uh, obviously okay. the okay. shot okay. needs to be there emails. to visualize guys. that she's going through his hard drive and she's organizing all this stuff instantly but I thought it was also interesting that we see him over the shoulder quite active. Like he's, he's like his body is shifting in that shot. And it, it doesn't quite make sense with any of the shots prior or post this insert. But it, it sort of grounds the shot as being like he, like he leans forward as if he's taking a look at what she's doing. And then he leans back is sort of the illusion that's being created. And I thought that was an interesting choice to not just show a clean insert of the screen, but have him be part of the shot dirty over the shoulder and through the motion actually almost let us look at him more, pay more attention to him than the actual screen even though there's motion there as well. Did you have any thoughts on this premise? No, I'm just looking at this at 352. Right. Yeah, it kind of cuts back and he's turned away. But yeah, I think that's... I think it's about the emotion of that moment, if that's what you're saying. Like, we're not interested in... The matching or leaning out, we're interested in how he feels about her, you know, going through his work and his feeling about it. He's kind of being shy and like turning away from the camera, concealing himself. So it's all kind of about the emotion of that moment in the story. And I think that's what gets prioritized in the edit. I thought that's a little little detail. The other thing I wanted to point out at 224, and this is sort of representative of the entire scene once she comes online, is the cutting between the medium wide shot to the medium close up. So if you go to 2.22, he leans back, 2.24, we're going to that shot. And I I sort of said, oh, this feels almost like a jump cut. And I don't know if you agree, but it's not as smooth of a cut because the camera is very close in position in both shots. And I think the reason... Yeah, go ahead. What do you think? I was going to say, just to define it as a jump cut, the jump cut, there has to be some compression and break in time, which that's just not happening. Time? Now, it might be an uneven cut. Or... Yeah, the time has to be compressed. There has to be a break in time. But it can also be with the space itself. You can have a bad continuity match, but to me, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a jump cut. It's just... If you're cutting from a wide shot and the camera on the same axis, same position of the camera, but now you're on a, you punch in to a close-up, that would be a jump cut, right? If it's any time later in the shot, meaning if there's a jump in time, it's not the logical next frame. Okay, interesting. That's that's not how I define a jump cut. Like, I feel well, a jump cut Everyone defines everything jarring. differently, but... So you're just saying a jarring, like a, like yeah. a jumpy cut. <laughs> just to be clear with people listening what we're saying. Yeah. So you're saying it's just a, a messy cut. It's the, yeah. The, it's it's it a bad jars continuity you. match. It, it feels like you're disrupting. Like if you're cutting from, let's yeah. say, a profile shot wide to a close-up head-on, that doesn't feel as jarring because you're clearly in a mm-hmm. different position, camera-wise. And we're saying in in this shot at two twenty, there's a way to hide this better. No, I f- I feel like it slightly feels like a jarring shot. 
Don't want to call a jump cut now. Name, but I wanted to pick a good one. But I think so. there's a reason why that is. I read a book called How to Name Your Baby. Yeah, and I mean, I'll, I think some of it has to do like with best. why it's jarring specifically. Mm, no, I was looking at where his eye line is. That's it's pretty close. It's yeah, both are know. kind of but yeah, there's something about it. Three quarter. His, his movements are matching. You read a whole book. Yeah, I guess it doesn't bother me as much. I mean, it's it's just that's what I was saying with editing stuff like this. It's just aggressive to cut from one person to that same person if you don't have like a big action or something like yeah. that or great stillness and an, uh, huge emotional moment to it yeah. do it. But I don't know. I think it works nicely for this. It's kind of like he's getting kind of zapped by what's going on. Is that funny? But yeah, I mean, I I feel like it's borderline. I think that's sometimes the the action hides this jarring moment mm-hmm. for me. To a certain degree, so it works most. But like of the time. you're saying, it's cutting well, right look, before the action, the so we're not really seeing that. You know, so he leans his head back and he's moving a little bit, and then it cuts one. right so before he lowers his head. And if it would have cut on him lowering it, it would have hit it a lot neat in a much well, nicer right way. I, I, I think. But then also, right. it's weird because we have the screen direction thing one. too. He's so changing I'm the direction. He's kind of looking in this scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From one sure. cut to the next, and and that's all just tricky, tricky stuff to get around. Yeah, it's between and then you have two this actions. guy edits come here and point out you fucking all this hard work you put in trying to hide it. Man, it's <laughs> definitely between two actions, which makes this cut work a lot better because the motion is drawing the attention of the viewer to mm-hmm. to that part. But I feel like the it's it's important that both shots were composed in a way that it's this semi-profile shot, that we're not just cutting from a heads-on close-up to a profile shot, wide shot, or the opposite of that, which makes it a more, like, I don't know, just a conventional way of telling a story. I feel like by being in the same angle for for this, it feels more of the same. And I think it was really important for the scene at this point to just be about him and the voice in his head and mm-hmm. make it as like try not to cut at all if possible to just have it be this intimate connection that he's having for the f- like this first meeting that's my theory behind it yeah i think it's great <laughs> but it also shows how you know you're prioritizing all this other important stuff over just the simple like it doesn't it's not 100% perfect this guy edits is going to notice it no, I, I feel it's a really strong choice by the filmmaker to decide where to put the camera and why it's where it is. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Even though it creates some a little jar to me at points in the scene. Yeah, but at no point, you're getting all this other stuff out of it that is not going to take you out of the movie. No. No, it's only because right. now I'm looking at it. Otherwise, I wouldn't notice, for sure. Looking at it with the with this inherited idea that things need to be smooth. Maybe what if we lived in a world where no cut was ever smooth? What would we? What would the art form of cinema be if there was no artifice of of continuity? Oh, you that know, happens. If we'd all grown the time. up in that world. Yeah, you oh, know, it's kind of a choice. What What would that world be like that we'd be in? Would we be much more honest with ourselves? What would it mean, Sven? Let's think about that this week 
for the listeners as we prepare for next week's show. So, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, let a friend know about the podcast. We appreciate it. We have some really cool stuff coming up, coming down the road. We're not oh, going to yeah. get into specifics yet, but there there is a, a cool thing that has been put into motion that I'm really excited about, Sven's very excited about. More on that going forward. And also... Subscribe if you're enjoying what you're hearing. If you are an operating system thingy, whatever Samantha is, if you're a Siri, just go ahead and subscribe for the person listening to this on their behalf. Even if they haven't listened to it, tell the other series to subscribe. We appreciate you also. We think Samantha has good taste. If you would like to leave a comment or share your thoughts, where, where do they do that, Sven? At this guy edits on Twitter. Very simple, and we appreciate the feedback. That's kind of how the whole show works. We got some cool suggestions for some stuff that we're going to be making use of with some montages coming up. And thank you to Curter for the music. And as Sven always says, happy editing. All right, turning off.